simply lost Ray. She was just so always full of energy, and whenever we learned of the disease she had and the time that was remaining, it was really kind of shocking for all of us to find out that things would happen that quickly. But it's also still kind of shocking to me to think it's even been a year since she passed away. So be remembering Nick and the boys throughout this week of her anniversary date of her death was last Friday, of course, like Jeannie's referring to. But they need to continue to pray for strength. We need to pray for their strength every day. I cannot imagine, Nick, the past year you've had. Brother, we pray for you and we love you. This is your church. We love you. Well, today we continue our study, the Beatitudes. So turn with me this morning and once again to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 starts the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is three chapters in length, the chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we have began our study of the Beatitudes discussion, and now we land ourselves into what is known as the third week of reviewing the Beatitudes. So, so far, a bit of a recap of where we have already been. We started out in the first part of the chapter in verse 1, learning that Jesus has gathered a multitude around him. He has been healing a lot of diseases and infirmities mentioned at the end of the fourth chapter. And now the people who have been healed, a great multitude has gathered, and they followed him to the Sea of Galilee in a mount that's overlooking the sea. And he calls the disciples close. The people are gathered together. A great crowd has accompanied him. And he sat in the position of authority and began to speak and teaching them. And he said to them in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we took the first week to recognize that the poor in spirit is not sometimes who we may think about with the economically disadvantaged. That's typically what we think about with people who are sometimes pronounced as poor. But poor in spirit meaning those who in their need turn to God for help. Or those who are totally dependent on God for help. For they then are poor in spirit. And we pronounced and said how that really should be all of us. All of us should always depend on God. So all of us really then should be poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That was the first beatitude. Then we turn secondly to verse 4, and it said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again in mourning, we think of those like Ray. We've lost a loved one. We cherish Ray. We would still love to see her today. And as Jeannie had with the children, we're going to see her again someday again. But when we lose someone we love, we have time of mourning and grieving. So Yes, it particularly pertains to those who've lost loved ones, for they shall be comforted. We mentioned last week as we dissected that particular verse, it goes deeper than that. It also refers to those who have regret for their sin and their waywardness, and also then evil is in the world because of our sin. So the morning was talking about that by comfort, Jesus referring to not only those who mourn naturally for losing someone they love, but also for those who recognize their own sinful way, for they shall be comforted. And in the third beatitude in verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We emphasized last week that meekness is not weakness, but rather describing someone who is quiet, having a gentle nature, maybe submissive in spirit. It is these people who shall inherit the earth, meaning that they shall receive peace and happiness while they dwell on earth, rather than those who are greedy, 
We mentioned that only the meek will have the capacity to enjoy in life all the things that provide genuine and lasting satisfaction. Those that are greedy will not enjoy longing satisfaction. So as we took a moment to then recap those first three Beatitudes, let's also recognize that the reason we're reviewing the Beatitudes at the beginning of a new year is that it can help us in the beginning or throughout the rest of this year. If there's something about ourselves we did not really like about 2022, and we thought that we need to change going into new year 2023, we found the Beatitudes can help us. Why? Because of our theme, which said that the Beatitudes are a map of life a series of directives helping us on our journey with God. So it was worthy to go back and look at the eight Beatitudes. We're nearly halfway through them. In fact, we will be today at the end of the message. And it can help us then maybe make that change. If we'd be so brave enough to make the change necessary to live a more productive, successful, glorifying God life in 2023, hopefully the Beatitudes are helping us make that change in this particular year. So with that then, let's continue and look into Matthew chapter 5. Stand with me once again as we go back to the reading. It's 12 verses in length. We've been reading them a couple of different weeks. Today we read them once more, and likewise we'll one more next week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Father, we come again before you this morning, Lord, reviewing once more the Beatitudes that begins the Sermon on the Mount. Arguably the best message given for us to dissect and to receive the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, is precious. It can speak to all of us. But Lord, today we look upon just a small portion of it. And I pray, Lord, then the Spirit will lead and guide that the words that be said here today, Lord, will not be words that I want to say, but the words you want us to hear to understand this text and to actually see how it applies to every life that we live in this room. I pray, Lord, that you be with us then and let's receive, Lord, the message you have for us today. And then, Lord, if there's change to be made, let's be brave to make that change today. Thank you, Lord, for what shall happen here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, with the introduction and serving as a bit of a recap of the first five verses, it allows us then to leap into chapter 5, verse 6, and the fourth beatitude. So let's look at the fourth beatitude again. It says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for there sh they shall be satisfied. 
Now, on the surface of that beatitude, you can look at that and say, well, it seems rather simple enough. I mean, it nearly needs no elaboration. But yet, we're going to dissect it anyway. And we start with two key words in that particular beatitude in that particular verse. The two key words would be hunger and thirst. And if we ask ourselves then, what is it like to hunger? Or what is it like to have thirst for something? And being in the process, what is it like to have thirst or hunger, recognize and observe that very few of us really know what it's like to be hungry and thirsty. Now, that is in no way taking away from any childhood or life experiences you've had where you've been through hard times. And there's hardly anything in the refrigerator or in the pantry or the cabinet. Because I know many of you have probably lived a life in which you've had, at times, maybe just a mustard sandwich. I mean, no meat, just mustard and bread. I mean, I can recall a time in my childhood when we had very little in the pantry. And a little bit in the fridge. And we had some milk, we had some bread, we had some basins. We didn't have a lot. I remember as we went to town, if we got to go to town, that going to McDonald's was a real treat. Or to going to Dick Clark's was something really special. We just didn't happen. We just didn't have a lot. But my parents would always some way scrape a bunch of stuff together for us kids to have something to eat. Even if it meant for parents, which do this often, going without something for themselves. So it's amazing to find that even the recent studies of today, that one in six kids go to bed at night hungry. That's amazing to think about that. But yet, in what I do, I see it all the time. Last week, there was a child who brought her lunch to school. And all she had in her lunchbox was a bag of chips. The week prior to that, we had a second grader they ate everything that we served them. And then after we finished serving and she ate everything she had, she apparently was still hungry. And she was just embarrassed by the fact that she was still hungry and, and she didn't want to say anything, but her teacher could somehow recognize that something was right with the child. So she went to the child, sat him down a little bit, and the child finally confided into the teacher she was still hungry. So the teacher came back to us and told us about it. So the cafeteria manager just gave her one of those uncrustable peanut butter jelly sandwiches, which kids love, and a bag of chips and other milk to make sure the kid was satisfied. Each Friday on the bus of the drive of my route, there is two children that get on that bus that will carry an extra bag. It's just like a Walmart bag. But they hand it to me, we get on the bus, and I set it beside me because the bag is just full of food that they need to help them get through the weekend. So it's an amazing thing to find that as, as advanced as we are today, that even in our country, we see that on TV through other countries that they're hungry, but even in our country, in modern day, we have certain families and children that you still have hunger and thirst. So do you think about that? We're blessed, really. But then Jesus recognizing that he's speaking directly to many of the people who may be truly hungry and thirsty. Because in the ancient world, 
when they were traveling from one place to the other, it wasn't unlike them to be hungry and thirsty as they arrived. Or during the ancient times, there was often starvation. As people went through desert areas, they didn't have water. I mean, widows especially live on the brink of starvation or without food and water. So Jesus then fully aware of the weary travelers in front of him. I mean, remember, he has a crowd of people gathered with him, recognize that many of these may be truly hungry and thirsty. He capitalizes upon the particular moment. And he says to them, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we can only imagine then that they grasped what he was talking about rather quickly. But nonetheless, as maybe he'd be referring to those who have nutritional needs, let's just dig a little deeper. And even ask them, what is there other meaning that he has? When he says thirst and hunger for righteousness, is there other meaning? And to begin to explain that then, we have to observe that though we don't give much thought to it, and it saddens us, Hunger and thirst pains are actually among our most beneficial sensations. Because then our bodies naturally tell us that we need water, we need nourishment, and we're going to die without it. So then in the same way, work with me, in the same way, very similarly, neither can our soul be healthy without the ingredients of righteousness. I mean, the soul has a God-shaped void that only God can fill. And so within us is hunger and thirst for something to satisfy us. Within us is something to, we hunger and thirst for something to satisfy and to fulfill us. And the only thing that can truly fill our soul and satisfy our heart is Jesus. It's the only thing. Solomon is known as the wisest man to ever live and arguably the richest man to ever live. And he tried everything under the sun to satisfy his God-shaped void that was in his heart. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 provides an offering of what everything Solomon tried. So I'm going to read to you the message of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's not the ESV that we read, but rather recap or rephrase called the message by Eugene Peterson. And he records chapter 2, Ecclesiastes, this way. And Solomon is trying everything. He said to myself, let's go for it. Experiment with pleasure and have a good time. So he did. But there was nothing to it. Nothing but smoke. He said, with the help of a bottle of wine, I tried my level best to penetrate the absurdity of life. I did great things. I built houses, planted vineyards, designed gardens and parks, made pools of water, bought slaves, who had children give me more slaves, acquired large herds and flocks, piled up silver and gold, gathered chorus singers to entertain with song, and most exquisite of all pleasures, voluptuous maidens for my bed. I prospered more than any predecessor. Everything I wanted, I took. I never said no to myself. I gave in to every impulse, held nothing back. Then I took a good look at everything I'd done. Looked at all the sweat and the hard work. But when I looked, I saw nothing but smoke. Smoke and spitting into the wind. There was nothing to do it, to any of it. 
nothing. There was nothing he gained. And Solomon learned that nothing in this world, of all the things he tried and had and possessed, there's nothing in this world that could fill the void in his heart. I mean, like any person, he hungered, he thirsted. And desperately tried to satisfy that hunger. But it was nothing. It was vanity. In his words, he pronounced in the beginning of the Ecclesiastes, he said, all, all of it is vanity. He proves to us, and we should recognize, there's only one thing that can fill an empty heart. And only one thing can satisfy and fill the void of shallowness and hollowness in our soul. And it's only Jesus. Only Jesus. So Jesus states then, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be comforted, they shall be satisfied. Or we could reword, rephrase what he's talking about here in the Beatitude, and said, Blessed are those who crave God and the kind of life designed for us with as much intensity as the hungry and thirsty crave for food and drink. So for them who have such hunger and thirst, for the life God designed for them, they shall be filled, they shall be satisfied. Leroy Lawson in his commentary on the Beatitudes said, Blessed are you when you yearn with your whole being to be right with God according to the covenant he made with you in Christ. You will be satisfied because God wants nothing more than to be your God, your protector and friend. You will be satisfied because nothing compares with pleasing God and nothing pleases God more than you should live up to the terms of the covenant, thus becoming everything God wants you to be. Lawson's correct, but we could take what he mentions here and reword it, if I dare, and say simply, crave the word. Yearn, hunger, and thirst for God and his son. Seek it, desire it, and obtain it. And be filled and satisfied. It's the only thing that will satisfy your hunger and thirst. Now comes with a warning. A warning is to always hunger and thirst. Do not kill your appetite. Sinful pleasures can do that. When you begin to indulge, as Solomon has, I mean, he went and found truly what he needed. But sinful pleasures we partake into in our life, when the flesh begins to rule, can kill the appetite. So always have a hunger and always have a thirst. Again, repetitiously, hunger, thirst, crave for righteousness and you will be filled. Jesus speaks to the crowd, his disciples, and tells them the fourth beatitude, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. Then he gives them the fifth beatitude, in verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Arguably, the fifth beatitude here is maybe the simplest to explain. The key word is mercy and is extended form merciful. I often describe mercy as God withholding something that we deserve, like the punishment. 
because of our sins, we all deserve to be punished. But God, in his mercy, withholds the punishment that we should receive because of our sinful nature. Now, as I say that, let me say this, too, because I don't want you to be confused with the fact that God will still discipline us. I mean, he's withholding his punishment that we deserve for rebellion and sin in our life, but he still will discipline us. Like any loving father, he will discipline those he loves when, he, when we need it. And the author of Hebrews made this a matter of fact and correct. In Hebrews 12, 6, it said, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who he receives. But while he disciplines us for them for our wrongdoing, he withholds the punishment that we truly deserve from a constant life of sin and rebellion. So maybe the question is, well, why, why does God withhold then the punishment for our sin and rebellion? And it's all because Jesus paid it all. He has paid it all for us. He took the punishment that we should receive upon himself. Jesus did that. He knew no sin. He was perfect, blameless, spotless in every possible way. He took our sin and bared the humiliation of the cross. He took the mocking, the ridiculing, the beating on his flesh, his body, all for us. And so Jesus then words to his audience, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Notably here, mercy implies compassion, which is not just a feeling of pity, but feeling plus some action. It is sympathy that leads to assistance, which describes someone who is merciful. Merciful people have a tendency to be compassionate and forgiving and gracious and kind-hearted. And maybe the best illustration outside Jesus himself is found in Luke chapter 10 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Take a look at it with me. In Luke chapter 10, we may know the story, but let's refresh ourselves with it. Luke chapter 10, verse 30 says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving then half dead. Of course, verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him, bound up his wounds pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Even further, verse 35, the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So, of course, the parable is an illustration of three people groups, a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. And then how two of the three look only after themselves and have no compassion upon the man who is in need, who's been robbed, who's been beaten and left half dead. And the Samaritan is the prototype of compassion, mercy, and Christian love. 
He gave unconditionally without expecting anything in return. So maybe the point of that is this, that God smiles on this world through the eyes of such people. He smiles on the world through people who are pronounced as merciful, kind-hearted, gracious. And Jesus laid down his life for us. And he essentially says then that we should be willing to do the same. Those are the merciful. Those willing to do so are pronounced as merciful. And he says to the merciful, then blessed are you, for you shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the merciful, the gracious, kind-hearted, those giving to others without expecting anything in return, for they shall receive and obtain mercy. And then finally, the sixth beatitude for today. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Obviously, the pure in heart is the key expression in the sixth beatitude. So the question really becomes then, well, who are the pure in heart? Is it you? Is it me? Is it all of us collectively together? Are we the pure in heart? Larry Chenard in his commentary says the language here may have its roots in Psalms chapter 24, verse 3 and 4, where it says in the psalm, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It is only he that has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So it should be noted here that the psalmist in chapter 24, the psalmist understands that drawing near to God in worship, which all of us have done today, we draw near to God in worship by coming here today, it is conditioned, listen, it is conditioned upon the integrity of one's character, not mere ritual. Don't just make it a check off your list to come to church on Sunday and think, I have worshipped God. Because it has to be, if you're pure in heart, truly come to worship God. If you truly come to worship God, it's not a ritual. It's not something you mark off the list. So then we should have a pure heart when we come to worship God. And a pure heart is descriptive of one's innermost being and motivation. One commentary I was reading said it this way, a pure heart is those who are blessed to see God are those of individual loyalty and sincerity of intent who act with absolute integrity and transparent honesty. A pure heart. As I think about what that commentary said about those who are described as having a pure heart, I think of David. I mean, yeah, David, I mean, David, yeah, he was not perfect. But David, I mean, he knew he had sinned. He knew he was nothing but a filthy rag. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, it gives us specifics of his actions he lust after Bathsheba. Of course, he tried to deny it and cover it up, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba. But it's brought to his attention by the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that he had done wrong and he had not gotten by with it, that God knew. So as all that begins to happen, 
David then begins to realize he did not have a pure heart. And we get the sense then in Psalm 51, a Psalm of David, that he wrote soon after Nathan confronted him about the relations he had with Bathsheba, he began to truly seek God with and want a pure heart. He was torn. His heart was full of pain for the sin he had. He recognized he had sinned against God. Listen to the words of the psalm, Psalm 51, a portion of it. David writing after recognizing his sin that Nathan helped him recognize and see, says, have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my inequity and cleanse me from my, my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Verse 7 adds, David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In verse 10, he continues, create in me a clean heart, O God. A renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If you know about David, you know we often refer to David as a man after God's own heart. Yet we also know that David was overcome by temptation. But in the psalm, it becomes evident that David yearned to have a pure heart, to be restored. He desired restoration to God. Also, that he could be in the presence of the Lord. He yearned to have a pure heart after he knew that he had sinned. What is the condition of our heart as we come here today? Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And I truly believe that every one of us in this room, maybe even people listening later, we have a believing heart. We have a believing heart. But listen, a believing heart is by no means godly, pure, or holy. So what this means is that we must desire, we must like David we must have a desire within us to have a pure heart. We must want to come before an almighty God and want a pure heart. So how do we obtain a pure heart? If that's what we should have, how do we obtain a pure, part, a pure heart? It's only by confession. Only by pouring out your soul, your being, your innermost secrets to God. God knows your secrets. You might be keeping them from someone you love. But God knows every secret, every sin, every action, every thought, every word. So it's coming for God and just pouring out your soul, confessing to him everything. He's waiting for you to confess. So you can be pure in heart, be cleansed devotion book I have home in the office says the believing heart perceives its own impurity but also knows to pray in earnest for purification expecting complete forgiveness because God is 
ready and willing to forgive every one of us for our inequities. We need then to recognize our sin, our evil, our wicked heart. And then we need to seek a pure heart and seek a cleansing. We need to seek a pure heart and seek a cleansing. The question is, can we do that today? Can we today look upon our own evil sin and truly seek a cleansing, a pure heart? Because here's the thing that happens oftentimes. I've been guilty of it myself. If we often go through life looking at others and then justifying our actions or our sin and rationalize to ourselves, well, that action, that sin I have is not as bad as my neighbor or my friend or my coworker. They're much worse than I am. Or we look upon other people's sin and then simply shrug our shoulders and say, well, well, we're all sinners. That's our tendency. And that's not seeking a pure heart. Justifying and rationalizing is not seeking a pure heart. So we need to let that tendency happen. Today, we need to truly seek God and have a cleansing of our soul, our heart. Because it's all about our individual heart, not Joe, Sam, John, whoever. It's about what person we're looking at in the mirror. To, to go to God today and seek a cleansing to be pure in heart. Why? Because God tells, Jesus tells the, the people in front of him. He's telling us today, blessed are you, pure in heart, for you shall see God. Isn't that your desire, to see God? Seek up your heart, for you shall see God. That's the sixth and final beatitude for today. Seek that cleansing, purify your heart. Father. We thank you for how we can take a moment, Lord, to look at this sermon and hear words that will help us in our world today, as evil as it is, and sometimes even with our sin, Lord, making it somehow, some way more evil, not intentionally, but just by action. That we can take these words and apply them to our lives and recognize that we need to be among those living today, particularly right now, seeking a pure heart. Lord, for all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As Paul mentions in Romans chapter 3, we also know, Lord, for the wages of sin is death. But Lord, you give us life. You give each and every one of us life. Lord, today, let us take a hold of that. I pray, Lord, for all of us here today, to get ourselves right with God, to cleanse our heart, to purify us. Let's be pure in heart as we leave here today. So I pray, I beg, I, I just pray, Lord, that any sin we have today, any unconfessed sin we have today, we would come before you now and confess, knowing that you will forgive us. There's nothing that we have done that is so bad that you will not forgive us, Lord. The day we position ourselves before you and we cleanse our soul, we cleanse our heart, and we thank you for how you will forgive us.
We thank you for your son Jesus, who was perfect in every possible way and took then upon him our sin that gives us the ability, the position to stand before you in righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.